where people are trying to think for the animal instead of letting the animal speak. Welcome to The Deal with Animals. I'm Marika Bell, anthrozoologist, CPDT certified dog trainer, and an animal myself. This is a podcast about the connection and interaction between humans and other animals. Today, we're talking with Dr. Mariska Kret. She's the principal investigator in the Cognitive Psychology Unit at Leiden University. Dr. Kret studies the expression of emotions and their impact on social decision-making across species. She'll be telling us how she measures emotions and interprets them objectively, and the many interesting applications of this research, from animal welfare to understanding human emotions. Now, it took a while for Dr. Kret and I to be able to find a time to record. There was a lot of back and forth and schedule changes and people getting sick, and you can even hear a little bit of a cough from the background as we just decided to go for it because who knew when we were all going to be healthy again? But I think you're going to find this to be a really interesting conversation and a great way to start our series about how animals perceive the world, the animal protagonist. So thank you for joining me today as we ask the question, what's the deal with animals? I love this question. What's the deal with animals? <laughs> what do I think is the deal with animals? I think the deal with animals, I, for one, I think is off. They're awesome. What is the deal with the animals? Oh gosh. So the deal with the animals, you know? What the deal with animals is, is that It's really the deal with animals for us. So what do you think is the deal with animals? Would you please introduce yourself and share your pronouns? Sure. My name is Mariska Kretz and I work as a professor at Leiden University, uh, the Department of Cognitive Psychology. I study emotions and the expressions of emotions in humans, but also in our closely living relatives. So that's the great apes, mostly chimpanzees, bonobos, but also orangutans, gorillas, and uh, yeah, some other primate species as well. Yeah, so fascinating. I, I find that this particular subject is really, really interesting because for the longest time, you know, people didn't think animals had emotions. Or there, that was at There's least still, still many people who yes. think they don't have emotions. Actually, <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah. that is true. It was 
it's a little more accepted now, I suppose, hopefully a lot more accepted. Uh, but that even if they, they did have emotions, you couldn't, there was no point in, in studying them because you couldn't ask an animal what their emotions were. And so there was no objective way to study that. But a lot of people have, have, have figured out ways of doing that. And, and you are one of them. How do you, how do you objectively study emotions in other animals? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to to realize that there is a difference between emotions and feelings. So mm -hmm. uh, when people talk about emotions, they are sometimes mixing it with, with feelings, the things that are really going on in our head. But we can have emotions and not be completely aware of them. Um, so what, what, what I'm studying are the things that are that we can observe. So expressions of emotion in the face, in the body, in the voice. But I don't know if animals or if all animals are completely aware of them. Probably not. Um, at the same time, I also don't think that humans are the only species that are aware of their own emotions, right? So uh, the approach that I am taking uh, is an experimental, uh, non-invasive approach. I'm, an, uh, I'm trained as an experimental psychologist where we look at uh, things like attention, memory, uh, cognitive bias. So, for example, uh, emotions well, and the expressions of the emotions of the people around us or our, the conspecifics around us are super important. So it's very natural that our attention is driven uh, towards them, that we remember uh, those emotional situations better than situations that are, that are not really relevant. So by studying these underlying mechanisms, I'm trying to get insight into, into emotions and compare different species because I'm interested in, well, what makes each, uh, each species unique, not just what makes humans unique, but what makes each species unique because every species has its, has its own unique features. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a separate species, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to, yeah, reveal all those uh, unique aspects. Why does it matter whether someone knows they're having an emotion or not? If they're aware of their emotions? Well, indeed, like you said, I often get the comment, well, you know, you can't really study emotions in animals because animals can't talk about their emotions. Um, of course, that's, that's true. But, you know, when humans talk about their emotions or, or their feelings, do they really know what they're talking about? Do they really have insight into their emotions? And also, do they want to share it? Are they honest in, uh, in, in, in talking about them? I think that we have to accept in some way that we can never completely understand what another person is feeling because we are not that other person. And then in a, it doesn't matter if that other person is a chimpanzee or, or a human being. We can never completely feel what another person is feeling. So I think that criticism that, that we can't ask animals about their feelings also applies to humans. And actually, maybe even more so, because with humans, we often think that we know what another person is feeling because, you know, that other person looks like us. And yeah, it's much easier to, to fill it in. But I think it's also much easier than to, to make incorrect assumptions. Um, 
And therefore, actually, I think it's also important when studying uh, these things in people to use more implicit methods and mm-hmm. not ask about emotions, but to, yeah, to look at underlying mechanisms as well. The methods that you use to research uh, primate emotions, do you then use those exact same methods to research human emotions yes. and compare those? Yeah, exactly. What's an example of that? <clears throat> so, for example, um, attention is uh, is really, really helpful to, to study. So um, the, the things that species, individuals that uh, attend to are the things that are re- relevant, evolutionarily relevant. So what you see in psychological um, attention paradigms is that people's attention immediately shift to uh, pictures of threats, for example, when you present them on a computer screen or um, uh, pictures of guns, for example, or, or, or pictures of emotional expressions of other people. Those are the things that are really relevant to pay attention to. And that's, the, the, that's true for, well, for, for every species, right? It has benefits to immediately attend to the things that are threatening to you or, or uh, that, are, um, that can give you something like attractive potential partners, for example. Those things capture attention. And by studying attention and manipulating the, the, the different stimuli that you present in your experiments, you can find out what is relevant for a particular species and what is relevant for a particular individual. And so are you looking at things like arousal level as well? So how fast the heart beats, breathing? Exactly. And I think that's really important because attention is just one thing. I think it's important to look at many different implicit indicators of, of emotion. And arousal is also a very important one that, uh, that I look at a lot. Although measuring arousal in great apes is always tricky because while we can, and I also only want to use non-invasive methods, and that means that you cannot put electrodes on the body because they mm-hmm. would immediately take it off. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so you have to, to use other types of techniques for example one technique is a thermal camera you can film them with this heat camera and uh yeah and get measures but it's still not completely trustworthy method i would say so now we are actually uh, (laughs) we came up with something quite original we're doing eye tracking experiments as well so that's to study where uh, where they are exactly looking at on a computer screen, so facial expressions, bodily expressions, making eye contact, those things. And when we are uh, doing that, they are drinking. They're drinking juice so mm. that their their head is relatively stable and we can make accurate measurements. But now we're um, modifying the drinking nipple so that it can also um, give us a measure of blood flow Oh, nice. that we can maybe hopefully, well, that's the idea, compute heart rate. <clears throat> and maybe from the saliva, we can, uh, we can also get uh, measures like cortisol, for example. So hormone, stress hormone levels. So that's, yeah, that's, that's how we are trying to get uh, uh, measures of, of arousal. But yeah, it, there, there's not a lot of research on it uh, in great apes. No. So, for example, if you if you look at macaque research, 
that is uh, done a lot because uh, research on macaque is allowed, uh, also invasive research. So yeah, researchers can just put a monkey in a monkey chair and hook it up with all kinds of equipment uh, and then measure all those things. Uh, that's not really the approach I like to take. No, it seems like you would be measuring their stress responses. Their st- <laughs> exactly, when you want to study lab experiment. Yeah, exactly. So I am never, ever separating animals from the social group. So that's also quite difficult because you want one individual behind the screen and not all of them at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so, But uh, once you've made that clear, by just uh, positively rewarding the animals, they actually understand and they they also find it frustrating if you want something from them and they don't know what what you want but once they know they actually are very cooperative yeah that's true and i they like for... to see things in the computer screen yeah that's true for kids as well and for yeah. people as well right yeah yeah and our dogs even anything any of the animals that interact with us a lot i think that we yeah. try to communicate with <laughs> it's all a matter of of how well that communication is working Actually, I participated um, when I was a postdoc in in Japan at the Primate Research Institute for, of Kyoto University. I participated <clears throat> in an experiment and I was not given any instructions because, well, you can't verbally instruct apes either and they wanted to make a comparison. And I was playing an economic game with another human and it was so frustrating <laughs> because I didn't know the rules of the game. I couldn't ask anything. and. It was so vague. And after the experiment, I've actually felt completely frustrated. So, yeah, I think it's yeah. funny how people feel like they're communicating really well with with their children or their dogs or, or even other humans. And and it's just not coming across yeah. at all. No, indeed. So that's also yeah, something to, to really be aware of when you design experiments, that it's simple, that it's clear and that it's fun. Well, if it's not fun, in my case, they just don't sit behind the screen. So that's easy. <laughs> right. So you, yeah. you, you know if they're wanting to participate or not because they're... Oh, yeah, that's very obvious. Yeah. Yes, they're or not. Yeah. I, I mean, you said you were trying to to learn about the uniqueness of different species. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you also take what you learn when you're working with the apes and you you translate that into working with humans as well. Yes, so for example, one application I could see is in clinical practice. Uh, For example, with people, uh, well, actually with everyone, but especially people who are not that verbal. So I'm thinking about very young children or different clinical populations. I don't know, maybe we have quite a refugee problem at the moment in the Netherlands. There's so many people coming in and not getting proper proper treatments, there's language barriers there. Um, maybe those implicit measures could be really, really useful for uh, diagnosing problems um, and, uh, yeah, maybe giving handles for, for, for treatment. I really see, see a link there. But, yeah, my research focuses mainly on the, on the bigger fundamental questions, so really mm-hmm. trying to get to know more about the about emotions in different species and i'm sure that can be really relevant to apply but that's the next step who who do you think would be using this in in their 
<clears throat> everyday research would 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 doctors be using it then as you said with with other humans but um is there an application as well for zoos or for um oh yeah definitely yeah so well uh, both i am actually collaborating with a psychiatrist who's uh, interested in using or not only interested who act we actually just started using uh some of these tasks in uh patients with autism and schizophrenia mm. and that's looking really promising uh, and also yes in zoos i think it could also have applications so for instance i'm also involved in a in a project where uh, we we want to give animals more control over their lives uh, captive i mean captive animals mm-hmm. so the, the apes in uh, in the zoo for example and one of the things that they have no control of uh, over whatsoever, but which is really important in life, is the choice of their partner. And uh, in orangutans, this is quite a problem because uh, if you try, yeah, female uh, orangutans are transferred to another zoo at some point because they will need to find a partner. They can't stay in their in their own group. That's also what happens in the wild. It's some Point, the females leave their group and shop around. Well, in in, uh, in the zoo world, they can't just shop around. So what uh, the zoo staff is doing, they look at the genetic map and based <clears throat> based on that, they, they select a, a, a male orangutan in, I don't know, in Frankfurt. And then the female is transferred there because that male hasn't produced much offspring yet. But there's no match. It doesn't work. The female doesn't like him. Mm -hmm. So we are now using those implicit measures to uh, get more insight into individual preferences, partner preferences. Mm -hmm. So, for example, is this female, well, what kind of personality does she like? What does she find attractive? Uh, We are also uh, planning to set up different uh, Skype dates and observe the behavior yeah so everything that can give us more insights uh yeah into preferences that can help uh, to to improve those transfers yeah that's that's huge for you know the implications for animal welfare in Mm -hmm. so many areas not just zoos because it has traditionally been that if if you wanted to breed two animals, you put them together, and if they didn't breed, you basically forced that. You know that that's what that's what happens to a lot of the females. They are held down. They are artificially inseminated. Um, you know all all sorts of pretty what we would consider horrendous if this was a human being yeah, um, situations, that's and and that's true for so many animals, not exactly. not just for animals in zoos. No, is this if, if this works well, is that going to seriously change what zoos are, and how zoos are doing things now? Yes, yeah, but it will it will take time. So this this project uh, actually in the Netherlands already became quite uh, popular in the media. So uh, under the name of Tinder for orangutans, but <laughs> and uh, it was all over the the media. I think it definitely has huge potential, but it is very difficult. It is very difficult to really design tasks that can give uh, very accurate predictive, um, yeah, predictive outcomes of this 
transfer success. So it will take a couple of years before we can really say, okay, the orangutans that are using this method are happier <laughs> than the orangutans that were, you know, that were just uh, randomly, uh, re yeah, moved to a different location. Matched so up. Not, yeah. Yeah. I, I, before before <laughs> claiming this uh, this method. Tinder for orangutans, I want to be really sure that it works. Mm. And for that, uh, much more research is needed. So that will take, uh, that will take more years. But I definitely believe in it. And I'm, and I'm continuing with this. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I know that at least anecdotally, uh, when, mm -hmm. when breeders are breeding dogs, they find that if there is a, a strong emotional connection between the parent canines, that they have a lot more babies in that litter. So if it's if it's a match maybe that is more forced, then they mm -hmm. might not have a very big litter. But if it's it tends to be that if they if they have a, a relationship with the other dog and, and it's a friend yeah. dog, you know, that they the litter could be significantly larger than an average litter size. I yeah. wonder if you'd end up I mean orangutans generally only have one baby anyway, right? But yeah, yeah, yeah. And what are you going to be looking at to know whether this was successful? Yeah, so that that, that takes, takes years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the number of offspring you would want to know. So this is really a longitudinal project and we're just mm -hmm. at the beginning. But well, and also we, we can't look at all the indicators of, of partner preferences that an orangutan would use in the wild. Mm. So because well, they're in a physically different location, right? So maybe we can do something with smell. Well, in COVID time, it wasn't possible, but maybe it's it's possible to do something with smell samples, mm -hmm. but it's quite difficult. So what we've been doing now is mostly uh, focusing on the physical appearance, so the face and mm -hmm. the voice as well. But uh, yeah, in a real-life situation, orangutans may use a different, uh, different strategy. I mean, they have such huge differences in personality. So one female can be yeah, very different than another one. But usually the females are the ones that are really picky and the mm -hmm. males don't really care because, mm -hmm. well, yeah, you know, the females, they have to, to make a, a good choice because they are with this offspring for, I don't know, eight years or so. It takes a right. lot of, of their energy and, and time. So you only have one one baby per yeah but or twins really common one. no usually they have one uh, and it stays with them for for years so they also breastfeed for a really long time yeah so it's not that well in humans uh, yeah two years after the first you have to say I'm pregnant of the second now <laughs> my son is two that's not uh, that's not typical for a orangutan mother hmm. They breastfeed for for five or six years. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I didn't breastfeed quite that long. <laughs> yeah, me too. Oh my god. <laughs> two two and a half years. That was plenty for me. <laughs> still long. Yeah. It is still long. Yeah. At, at the moment when when people have to go right back to work again, it, it is still a long time. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm just I'm I'm fascinated to to. The, the orangutan tinder fascinates me because it, it's it really is this idea that that emotions should matter in animals and and particularly maybe even more so in our closest relatives because 
we know that they experience emotions. I think it's it's more obvious in in primates than almost any other animal. It it, it would be very hard for anybody to, yeah. to have an interaction with a with an ape and go, oh, that ape isn't having any emotions. That no. I can't even imagine somebody <laughs> thinking no, that. No, actually, really. all the, the the criticism also comes from people who ha- who don't really directly work with great apes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's still yeah. researchers who, who are claiming that animals don't have emotions. Because you need language for, yeah, for that. Yeah. For example. But yeah, I mean, it's it's also, I think, beneficial for people in some areas to to say that animals don't have emotions. Because if they did, course. that would be huge. Yeah, they have to change their, their, their lifestyle. <laughs> or, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, research or, yeah, just in everyday, you know, lifestyles, too. Yeah. Yeah, no, mm. that's really easy indeed. But um, I think this this idea of giving animals more control, uh, I think it could be even yeah, it could be a very broad thing. So not just on partner choice, but more maybe we can also give them more control over uh, I don't know things in their enclosure. I'm thinking about uh, captive animals right now. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or food or whatever, if we can, yeah, via those impl- implicit measures, get more insight into any kind of preference, and we can we can use that knowledge to make their make them uh, feel better. Mm-hmm. I think we should do that. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that preference tests are becoming really popular as well in a lot of different areas, even in in farming, for instance. Yeah. You now, if <clears throat> if you're farming an animal and they aren't healthy then or they're not happy then they're often not healthy either so the more that you know you can increase animal welfare even when the fate of that animal is ultimately not ideal for them how they're living still is a very important aspect of that yeah those two are super connected as is Mm -hmm. the case in humans right Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah well what is what is the downside to what you do then? What what do you what do you find most frustrating? For me, I would think it would be trying to have those conversations with people that are not understanding the research or, or who don't um, don't yeah, think that it's yeah. But those people don't really. I, no, actually, I don't really mind. They actually hmm. trigger me to <laughs> to work harder harder to prove the opposite. Yes. So don't they don't no really bother me but but just on a very practical level what i have to deal with a lot is for example the keepers in the zoo who Mm -hmm. are usually well they really really love their animals but they're usually they don't have a scientific background so they're yeah i i really have to uh yeah also take their perspective and and explain why research is important and also the type of research that doesn't have a direct uh, application mm-hmm. because yeah that's the that's the research that they usually see most value in whereas right. i also really think that the big questions like do animals have emotions or what do they feel or what do they recognize the emotions of conspecifics those questions i think are also really important uh, yeah, really important to ask, to ask. But uh, yeah, so that's one one practical 
thing that I sometimes struggle with, but not not always. It depends on the keepers. The keepers are really really important for, for my research. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. yeah. Well, what about social anxiety with with apes? Do they experience uh, like is it hard for some of them to talk with other apes? Not talk, you know what I mean? Interact with? Mm-hmm. Are they shy? Do they do they have issues with that? Yeah, definitely. There's as many individual differences between well in a chimpanzee group as in a in a group uh, of of people so you have all those things you have social anxiety you have depression you have apes with autistic traits yeah you have all of it and it i'm not saying that it's the same mm-hmm. uh probably there are uh yeah some things are exactly the same but there's probably also differences and uh yeah so yeah as i said every species is unique so um we shouldn't always start from the human perspective and ask the question mm-hmm. do they have social anxiety do they have autism do they have this this and this and this but mm-hmm. also start from the animal perspective and mm-hmm. see and, and observe their behavior and observe their emotional problems um because you know maybe there's differences uh there maybe they have things that we don't have Hmm. and if we don't start with the animal but we start with human we're always going to miss things Mm -hmm. so for example also with with emotions we already see differences between human cultures Mm -hmm. for example uh yeah, there there are some words that exist in in English that don't exist in in, in Dutch or the other way around. Uh, yeah, there's there's cultural rules about you know which emotions you express or even which emotions you sh- you should feel. Mm-hmm. I think I've I've read somewhere that in in the US that there's yeah a big focus on always feeling very positive and happy that is that is what you want to be whereas mm-hmm. in japan for example it's more about being in balance mm-hmm. so that's quite different right and if you mm-hmm. already see that uh, yeah um, that difference between different human culture uh, then i can imagine that well there's of course huge differences between species especially species with a very different body maybe birds have a specific emotion when they fly, that we can never ever experience. I, I I can imagine that that could be the case because, well, it, it is beneficial for birds to fly. So probably there's an emotion coupled to it that motivates them to do it. And I'm, I'm just thinking out loud now, but yeah, you know, maybe there's emotions there out there that we don't have. And it's worth asking that question just to find I out. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And of course, it's really difficult to not take a human perspective because I am a human. Yes. <laughs> so I, yeah. But at least let's try to take the animal perspective. Yeah, the implicit bias of just being a human and and seeing things from our perspective must be very difficult. Maybe that is my, my yeah. So your question: What is your biggest uh, <laughs> your biggest struggle or biggest uh, challenge? What did you? I don't remember what exactly. Yeah. how you phrased it but maybe that is my frustration that i'm that i'm always going to be a human <laughs> yeah <laughs> i have that same frustration often <laughs> since i was a kid in fact 
What is the most fun? I, I imagine just working with the apes themselves is just absolutely fascinating. I mean, I could I could watch other animals all day. Yeah, no, you're you're completely right. So what I find find really funny is that, well, as a, as a researcher, you you come up, well, you have a research question, and then you come up with ideas on how to test whether that's yeah whether your hypothesis is correct or or not. So you're designing experiments, and then you've done that. And you're 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 doing it, and then the ape comes up with a completely different solution that you didn't anticipate before on beforehand. So, for example, uh, I had uh, yeah, I have one uh, yeah one male bonobo. So I pr- let me think. What was it? Yeah, I uh, it it had to tap on a certain position on on the screen, and then it was uh, a correct uh, yeah correct answer on the trial. But instead of tapping, he would just swipe across the screen, mm. and then get fifty percent correct. And he was fine with that, <laughs> and he <laughs> just accepted, you know, that he had uh, yeah. On half of the trials, he got a small piece of apple, and on the other half, he didn't. So it was really difficult. To, to teach him the task because he was already already happy with the results. Yeah. So that's that's just one example. Um, yeah, where they come up with a different solution, and you really have to to rethink how you set up your experiment and how you're get going to test your your research mm-hmm. question. Yeah, that motivator is very important, isn't it? He sounds like he was he was uh, yeah happy with the the results yeah, so it was good yeah. enough yeah why why would you why try harder why try harder exactly yeah yeah or they yeah they they always come up with things that you that you can't anticipate <laughs> and the orangutans they're really really interested in the technology itself so uh the, the in in the computer and in all the well we we we've oh, Gosh, we, we designed three orangutan proof setups. Um, so this third one now seems sturdy enough. <laughs> but the other ones, they just yeah, took it apart. It was uh and they, they yeah, they had a lot of fun doing that because they, they were are so strong. Clear. Yeah, they it was not that they were aggressive or something. They really just wanted to yeah, to 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 study it. Interested in how you feel about having animals captive being used for mm-hmm. for research, even if it's fairly benign. Yeah. So, um, well, they're in 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 my case, they're not being used for research. I just switch on the computer screen, and if they want to sit behind it, they can sit behind it and they can see things. If they want to leave, they leave. So that's mm-hmm. it's not even considered <clears throat> research. Um. So so I'm. Yeah, I'm fine with that. And I also see uh, that uh, the animals like it. And we are actually also studying that. So we're studying the effects of these well, experiments mm-hmm. on their uh, on their daily behavior. And we, we find evidence that it is enriching uh, for them. Otherwise, I also wouldn't do it. But in general, keeping uh, apes in zoos, I'm quite ambivalent, to be honest. Mm. Uh, on one hand, I think, you know those beautiful uh, uh, creatures should not be kept uh, in captivity, 
But on the other hand, I think it's zoos play a really, really important role or different roles actually. So one of them is that uh, yeah, that, anim- that that people get in touch with nature and see animals and learn about animals and learn about intelligent animals as well. Uh, not just for our um, entertainment. I think the the role of zoos has changed a lot. It's not about entertainment, or it should it shouldn't be about entertainment uh, anymore, but also about education and uh, and research. <clears throat> and another uh, another reason is that uh, they are really good ambassadors for their conspecifics living in the wild. Mm-hmm. So if people yeah see the animals in the zoo, they can also uh, learn about um, conservation uh, in uh, in the wild, and, and um, well, that's not the case for for great apes. It's not possible to to reintroduce them in the wild. But for other species, the zoo plays a really important role in reintroducing individuals into the wild. But then why really... sorry, why isn't it possible to reintroduce? Apes. No, you can't. You can't introduce an ape that's born in a zoo into the wild. It won't survive. They just don't know how to take care of themselves, or or another yeah. uh, a troop won't take them in. No, indeed, indeed, mm. no. So that's not uh, that's not not possible. But for other species, that is uh, that is possible. Interesting. I wonder why it it wouldn't work for them. Well, their life is in the zoo is so different mm-hmm. than in, in the wild. You know, you have all those predators and the, all <coughs> those poisonous, uh, yeah, poisonous food items. You have competing groups and all of that you don't have in the zoo. How are you going to train an individual for all that? How are you going to prepare? Mm-hmm. It's really difficult. Yeah. yeah I know I that in Indonesia you have sanctuaries. For uh, for orangutans, so where um, <clears throat> orangutan babies whose uh, mother was killed for the bushmeat trade, uh, they are they are they get jungle training, really really intense jungle training, and sometimes are reintroduced. But the problem now is that there's no jungle left to place them in. Yeah, there's not not enough space in the wild jungle, so they just stick in those uh, stick around in those um, sanctuaries because there's no space I think orangutans are probably one of those animals that are not going to be around that much longer certainly not in the wild well that's the case for all um, for all great ape species and indeed especially orangutans but also bonobos and bonobos they only live in the Democratic Republic of Congo mm. and do we really so if we get rid of all the bonobos in the zoos that's about 200 worldwide that we're talking about. So it's not a lot. There's only mm-hmm. 200 bonobos living in captivity in the whole world. But if we... Um, if we stopped breeding them and... Yeah, indeed. Yeah. If we stopped breeding them, then we would give the full resp- responsibility to the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is a complete mess, for the... Yeah, continuation of the, the survival of this species mm. that is our yeah. closest living relative. I too have been ambivalent for a long time about zoos. I actually started my career working and thinking I wanted to be a zookeeper and work in zoos because that's how I saw I could be close to 
you know, the, the big cats primarily, but, you know, any animals. <coughs> but, you know, once I got into zoos and I kind of realized, oh, this isn't exactly what I was expecting. You know, it was a lot of bureaucracy and it was a lot of, um, you know, which are the most charismatic animals that are going to bring the most guests into the mm-hmm. zoo. So those are the ones that get the nicer habitats and have more investment in in zookeeper yeah. time and all of that. Yeah. And it it was very um, uh, eye opening and not in a not in a good way. And and I decided yeah. that wasn't really where I wanted to be. And I still, I, but I have a hard time. Not the fault of the zoos. No, not often not. Enough, they don't get enough money, mm-hmm. so they have to think. Uh, that's why commercially yeah. as well. The zoo near here is an amazing zoo um, for for a zoo, but it's also government funded primarily, um, or a lot of it. And and the zookeepers are a technically government employees, or at least they were when I was there. And um, and so they weren't allowed overtime. And so animals, you know, they would have to leave at a certain time. And, and occasionally, an animal was not you know, looked after as well as it should have been because there was not that time investment that, that needed to be there. And uh, again, a lot of the keepers w- would have definitely stayed later if they had been allowed to and, and worked even more, you know, probably to their own personal detriment um, happily, but, but it just wasn't allowed. And, mm. and that was, that was a really hard one for me because we lost a few animals in, in the, the area that I was working in um, to things that shouldn't have happened. And it was, it was so, so frustrating to me. And, and, and that was a really good zoo too. So I can imagine, you know, sometimes what, what goes on in some of the zoos that maybe aren't, you know, don't have as much funding. Um, But at the same time, I, I, I love seeing the animals. I do think that there is, there's some benefit to, to going to a zoo and seeing, you know, and actually. It's your children, right? And explain. Things, yeah. yeah. Having those, having those, you know, visual interactions, I, I, I do think that probably there's going to be other ways in the future that we can do that, um, that we won't need zoos for that particular thing. And maybe zoos will become more of a sanctuary sort of experience for animals that need it and they don't have to be exhibited as well. But um, it's, it's yeah. absolutely fascinating to be able to sit there and just watch the gorillas for as long as you want you know yeah but also you know so you said well what if we um for example stop the the, the breeding program that also has huge consequences for animals Mm -hmm. themselves because getting a child for a bonobo for example is also you know really really important uh yeah really important for their well-being yeah and if the group just dies out that's also yeah for their particular welfare would not be yeah yeah good the bonobos yeah there's many (laughs) yeah many considerations it's not so easy it's easy to say oh yeah just let's stop zoos but Mm. you know what are you going to do with the animals yeah there's a lot that yeah, the, the animals in the zoos, but also what what's ha- what's going to happen with all the animals living in the wild? Mm-hmm. Are they going to be protected? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a zoo in Singapore. Have you been to Singapore before? Yeah, years ago, but uh, not to the zoo. The zoo is is a really f- it, it's 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 kind of amazing because it, it's almost like they've taken 
the fence and they've just like stuck it around some jungle <laughs> and then whatever was in the jungle is now in the zoo. And you know, it's, it's, it's not exactly like that, but it feels that way because they're the orangutans, for instance, um, they are allowed pretty much all of the canopy in the zoo. And so they can go up into the canopy for a very large portion of the zoo. And then there, ha there's an area they can come down and an Island and, and that sort of thing. Um, but they just hang out in the trees most of the time. They're hardly ever on the island except to go down and drink some water and then kind of come back up again. And and then there are certain times a day where they can come down and uh, hang out with humans and people can get the pictures taken with them. And they they just kind of stand there behind you and maybe line up as a group of five. And, the, you know, the, the tourist stands in front of them and gets their picture with like five orangutans just hanging out. Wait, wait without any without any separation? Nope, no separation. Um, they, they had this one program for a long time was called, a uh, a breakfast with orangutans and, um, they would bring the, the mom down with her baby and she would hang out in, in a little like forested corner of the, of the cafeteria and hang out and eat her basket of fruit with her baby And then you would get your pictures with them together and everybody would eat their breakfast in the cafeteria while she hung out there with her baby. And then, then she would leave at the end of breakfast. And it was this very um, interactive experience mm. in Singapore, particularly with the orangutans. And, uh, and again, it was, it was really hard to figure out how to feel about that. Like being able to have such a close interaction as just a regular person who doesn't work with, primates for anybody would be such a draw. Um, yeah. But is that really the the right way to be interacting with? Well, as long as a wild the, animal, a wild animal, you know, it's also a captive animal, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think we have to accept that <laughs> the zoo is not the jungle. And yeah. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, this is also something I had to uh, to really talk about with uh, zoo staff because in the beginning a lot of zoos were uh, under the impression that everything should be so as naturalistic as possible and as similar um, to the jungle they came from uh, as possible. Mm -hmm. But I think it's much more important to look at what is good for them, what is enriching for them. And if that's a computer screen, why not? You know, mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. so, yeah. So also, yeah, if if there can be more interaction between the animal and, and um, animals and the visitors, I think it's good as long as the animals are can, can, can get the choice. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But I think, and I think that many animals would want to uh, to do that. So for example, yeah, I can I can see that many bonobos, especially the young ones, they they really want to interact with the visitors. They bang on the glass and they 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 play um, chasing game mm -hmm. with with the, with the human kids and yeah. But again, yeah, individual differences and interaction would be enriching. I you know, it it seems like it would be Yeah. And, and so much harm has also been caused by, by that idea that, again, as you said, everything has to be totally natural. And, and yeah. there was a orangutan many years ago in the U.S. that was taught sign language and had most of his childhood with his 
with his instructor, lived with her and, and, and he was taken away and then spent, you know, the last years of his life, essentially decades uh, alone in a zoo with very natural, I'm using quotes here, natural environments yeah, around him, yeah, yeah, yeah. but no interaction with humans because, because it had been decided that that wasn't good for him. The documentary is called The Ape Who Went to College. It's the story of an orangutan named Chantek who is raised as a human child on the American University campus during the 70s and 80s. The documentary was from PBS in 2014. It's an excellent documentary and one that really makes you question the idea of a natural environment being best for all captive wildlife. But if you're going to watch it, definitely have a box of tissues nearby. Yeah. And and he was just lonely and, and yeah, depressed and it was the saddest I think there's a similar thing I've ever seen. Um, yeah, I think there was a, si- a similar documentary at a gym. But yeah, indeed, you can look it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there's many sad stories like that where people are trying to think for the animal instead of letting the animal speak. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So if there was a book that you could share with all of the listeners, uh, what would that book be? Well, one book that really uh, inspired me is uh, the book by Charles Darwin on the expression of emotion in man and animal, mm-hmm. 1872, because there's a lot uh, in it that is still very, very relevant and still very inspiring. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really good, uh, yeah, good starting point. A very early starting point. A very early start, starting point, yeah. And then I also think... A book by Kristen Andrews, Mm -hmm. uh, How to Observe Animals, How to Look at Animals. The book is a Cambridge Elements, The Philosophy of Biology series, How to Study Animal Minds by Kristen Andrews. And of course, the book recommendation links are always in the show notes. There, uh, There she also describes how important it is to use the same terms when we are studying humans as when we are studying our close Mm -hmm. relatives, because if we are well, speaking about the smile in the case of humans, and we're speaking about talking about the pulling up of the corners of the lips in the terms of chimpanzees, that's not really a fair comparison then. So we have to use the same methods in the same terms. And I think that's a really, um, yeah, really nice book to, to read as well. It's not very thick. It's something that we do all the time, right? The, the definition of words changes how we feel about what's going on. And and for instance, uh, I did some research on sheep and talking about friendship in sheep and whether sheep form friendships or not. And and just having to explain why I was using the term friendship versus uh, conspe- conspecifics who like to spend time together or who 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 do spend Senior time one. together yeah. doing similar things. <laughs> like that is my definition of friendship. So why don't we just call it friendship? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Kristen Andrews, she wrote a book uh, recently. Yeah. I will link those. And, and, and I also really always enjoy reading the books by Frans de Waal, a Dutch primatologist. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. well, you know, uh, he's at Emory University. Yes. And, uh, and he posts think, a lot of very cute animal photos on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and, but also interesting anecdotal uh yeah, anecdotes that I think are really important and aspiring for empirical studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So would you share an early childhood formative memory uh, about your connection with, with animals? 
yeah, there, there, there's so many. I don't have one with animal emotion or, or with animals, for example. With I, either one, something that really inspired you or, or made you feel connected to other animals? Yeah, so, well, we always had budgies when I was really, really young. Uh, as a as a young child, um, my parents always had budgies, and I always really enjoyed interacting with them. I really, really loved them, uh, and I remember uh, one in particular, and he was always, always with me. And then he became ill; he had some kind of cancer, and uh, it was one evening. He was really not doing well at all. I think I must have been, I don't know, maybe seven or eight or something like that and he was just sitting in my in my hand really really sick and at one point I had to go to bed my, my mom told me yeah, it's time you have to go to bed and put the bird in the cage and I didn't want to do it but then I in the end I did it and the bird with his yeah he was very weak with his last force tried to fly back in my hand um and the next morning it was dead. And I never forget, I never forget that. And I I just regret so much just not, you know, spending those last few hours with him in in my hands. And yeah, I'm 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 sure, you know, that that connection that uh, that humans feel with their pets is uh is often real. I'm not saying that what humans think animals are feeling. Uh, is always accurate but uh yeah but there's definitely this this connection that we should take very seriously yeah it affects us whether it is yeah exactly real or not real yeah Hmm. true so what do you think is the deal with animals we are in the middle of them of the animal kingdom we are not at the top of uh, the animal kingdom, you know, we try to uh, to think that we are, but we aren't. I mean, if all if other species would go extinct, we would go extinct as well. We're completely dependent on other animals for the whole e- ecosystem. Um, humans tend to think that they that they excel at everything, but that's not true. I mean, <laughs> birds can fly, bats can use sonar. Uh, whales can communicate over great distances. There's so many fascinating things that animals can do that we cannot do. And in our arrogance, we often overlook that. And I think what's the deal with animals? We should definitely open up and try to learn from them and uh, use our huge cognitive capacities to protect them. I think that's, uh, yeah, that's the big deal. If I don't know if that's answering your question, but it does, yeah. I think that's excellent because it, it's true. It's the idea that we can live without animals. I think is one that people subconsciously believe is that if all the animals are disappear, well, that's you know it would be sad, but we'd still be here. But we wouldn't. No, we won't be here. No, no. But Supporting without the, the animals, there would not be plants, and we can't live with without oxygen. And yeah, there would not be wouldn't be possible so yes we need to find a way to to live together
That was Dr. Mariska Kret. She's a full professor at Leiden University in the Netherlands, Cognitive Psychology Unit, and leads the Comparative Psychology and Effective Neuroscience Lab. If you enjoyed this show and have any questions or comments about this episode or about the podcast in general, go to thedealwithanimals.com. Leave me a message. I will always read them. And this is also a great place to go if you're interested in being a guest or have an idea for a series or episode. And don't forget to follow and review wherever you listen to your podcasts as it helps us become more visible to other listeners. The Deal with Animals theme music was composed by Kai Stranskoff, and many of the episodes in the series were edited by Natasha Matzart. The Deal with Animals is part of the iRoar Animal Podcast Network. So what do you think is the deal with animals?